Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Why the Last Man and have shows in the works on No Time to Die and Lamb. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias. Tasha and Genevieve are too busy sipping banana daiquiris in Cuba to participate this week. In their place, we brought in special guest Jason Bailey. You may have read Jason's work in the New York Times or one of his books, including his latest, Fun City Cinema, New York City, and the Movies That Made It, which also has an accompanying podcast. Hello, Jason. Well, uh, I think this is the part where I should artfully crossfade to an image of myself 10 or 12 years ago uh, reading the AV Club and hoping to one day write that well, which is <laughs> a, a long way of going about saying what a pleasure it is to be here with the two of you. So thank you for having me. Yeah. And real quickly, is your book out now or is it uh, when is it out? October 26th is the current okay, release the time, date. It is by the time f- this comes out. It'll be there. Great. Yeah, it's that's our, I believe, our fourth release date, but I think this one's going to stick. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Feel good about or this could, one. We could get punted to March the last minute, as I know. All right. So here's the thing. Is everyone on board with the plan? Uh, what plan? The one I sent over. You guys didn't get it? What? No, 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 I, would, I, I, no yeah, I have no idea. I, no, there's no plan. Okay. It would have been helpful if you read it, but here's the deal. Instead of our usual structure, we're going to break format with these episodes. Part one will be exactly the same, a straightforward podcast episode. But in part two, we're going to employ a lyrical editing structure. It will feature our thoughts on the movies we're pairing, but also moments of contrast to events that happened years before the first episode. Wait, what? And, and are you ready for this? Our parts will be played by a community theater troupe. They'll be joining us in a bit to play our parents as they reenact scenarios that find meaningful connections between the past and the present and illustrate how our lives were shaped by events that took place long ago. Who's ready? I am not. I'm definitely not. It honestly sounds like kind of a disaster. And isn't the format of our podcast such that we're already exploring connections between past and present? Hmm. Okay. Okay, one sec. No, they they didn't go for it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I know you were looking forward to it. Costumes and everything, huh? Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, well, I, t- I told you this is a podcast. Yeah, Charles Fleischer recorded his part as Roger Rabbit while wearing a rabbit costume. Uh, no, I, di- I-, I didn't know that. Look, I'll call you later. Okay, Scott, uh, maybe you should tell us about our pairing if you feel so strongly about our regular format. Uh, you know, I'm up for experimentation, but uh, this sounded like a terrible idea. <laughs> um, so for our next two episodes, we're talking about gangsters and crime and flashbacks and prequels via two films set in the mafia underworld both follow-ups to some of the most acclaimed and influential mafia stories ever told. First, we'll be discussing Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 film, The Godfather Part II, a sequel to the Best Picture-winning 1972 film, The Godfather, that itself took home the Best Picture Oscar. Split across two timelines, the film divides its time between Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, 
as he expands the Corleone Empire into Nevada, and his father Vito, played as an adult by Robert De Niro, as he, like his son, begins a life of crime almost by accident. In the second installment, we'll make connections between Coppola's film and The Many Saints of Newark, a prequel to the groundbreaking TV series The Soprano, set in the hotbed of late 60s, early 70s New Jersey. So get ready for a double feature of gangsters in their tender years, and their not-so-tender years, set at turning points in American history. Starting with a classic that didn't necessarily seem like a good idea at the time, moving on to an instantly divisive addition to a famous show's lore. Please join us after the break. The history of two generations of crime... The drama of absolute power and the men who violate it. The Godfather, Part 2. What is your name? Don Vito Corleone and his son Michael. Both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Both had killed as an act of vengeance. Both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world. Is it true that in the year 1950, you devised the murder of the heads of the so-called five families in New York? It's a complete falsehood. They would take any measures. I mean, you've won. Do you want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. It's just my enemies. Francis Ford Coppola didn't want to make a sequel to The Godfather, though the film had brought him success on a scale he never experienced in his still young, already tumultuous career. Not only had it enjoyed wild popularity, it won Coppola widespread acclaim on its way to winning Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Coppola and Mario Puzo, author of the book on which it was based. But making it had been hard. Coppola had butted heads with executives at Paramount, particularly producer Robert Evans, and the complicated shoot had proven exhausting. Coppola wanted to make his own smaller movies like The Conversation, a study in paranoia and isolation that would also earn a Best Picture nomination in 1974. You've got the recipe for Coca-Cola, Paramount's Charlie Bloodhorn told him before asking, and you don't want to make any more bottles? He did not. In fact, Coppola tried to set up his friend Martin Scorsese with the job. Eventually, Paramount won him back, but Coppola agreed only on the condition that he be given total control to make the movie he wanted. Paramount agreed. When you've got the recipe for Coca-Cola, you can make those sorts of demands. What Coppola wanted to make, even before taking on The Godfather Part Two, was a story of fathers and sons set across two timelines. From Puzo's novel, he took the story of Vito Corleone's early days in America, an unfilmed section of the book that follows Vito as he meets the core crew of what will become the Corleone crime family and begins his ascent into the criminal underworld. To that, working in collaboration with Puzo, he added the next chapter in the Corleone story, one in which the reluctant mob boss Michael Corleone's promise to take the family business legitimate has mostly meant escalating the scale and scope of its crimes. The Godfather Part Two is a sprawling film about how families come together, how they fall apart, and how it's sometimes impossible to tell the difference. Where the Godfather ended with Michael, once a proud veteran who'd sworn to stay out of the family business, taking the reins of his family's empire and distancing himself from his wife Kay, played by Diane Keaton, and the person he once imagined himself to be. Part two begins several years later with Michael as a confident but hollowed out man. The empire has grown, but the family with which it was once synonymous has frayed. In the end, he can only really save one. 
But rather than just a tale of decline and fall, it's also a story of sealed fates. Young Vito's murderous professional career inevitably leads to the death of his loved ones and the loss of Michael's soul. In one of the flashback sequences, Vito accompanies his shady friend Clemenza, played by Bruno Kirby, to retrieve a rug he claims a friend has given him as a gift. Vito comes to realize he's participating in a break-in, but if he has any choice, he goes along anyway. He brings the blood-red rug home and places his infant child Sonny on it, where Sonny begins crying as if recognizing the transgression will lead to his own bloody death years later. Coppola's original Godfather brought poetry to the story that, on the page, is as irresistible as it is pulpy. Part two doesn't lose the bloody intrigue, ringing thrills from both Vito's cool handling of the neighborhood boss he displaces and from Michael's power struggle. That puts him up against the seemingly generous rival ganglord Hyman Roth, played by famed acting teacher Lee Strasberg in a rare big screen role, and requires Michael to search for the traitor in his midst. But the film also doubles down on the poetry, following the story of an immigrant discovering what it takes to make it in his new home into the dark heart of American politics. Ideals don't mean anything. Family does. Michael uses a Corleone business to gain riches and power, but loses everything that matters along the way. But maybe, the film's swinging pendulum structure asks, he never had any say in the matter anyway. That the darkness enveloping him as the film draws to a close started to form, started to form years ago and many miles away. I'll change. I've learned that I have the strength to change. And you'll forget about this miscarriage. And we'll have another child. And we'll go on. You and I. We'll go on. Oh. Oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. I know now that it's over. I knew it then. There would be no way, Michael, no way you could ever forgive me. Not with this Sicilian thing. So everyone, I, I think I don't think anyone has seen this film for the first time. What, what's your history with The Godfather Part Two, Jason, you're a special guest. What, t- tell, me, tell me about your history with this film. It's actually, uh, I I recall this so vividly. I saw both Godfather 1 and 2 in December of 1990, which I remember so clearly because HBO was airing them both in the run-up to the release of Godfather 3 that month. Mm. So they they ran both of those films. They also debuted the uh, the Godfather Family, a Look Inside documentary, which is very good and has all those great, like, you know, all of the audition tapes from, you know, of, of De Niro playing Sonny and all that sort of thing. And I, I hadn't, I had only heard of these films. I had, uh, I had never seen any of them. I had just turned 15. So my dad decided that I was old enough to see them. Uh, and so, and yes, 15 in 1990, if, if that doesn't age me enough, I will add that we, we taped them on VHS from HBO <laughs> 
and I watched them. And then Godfather 3, like a couple weeks later when it came out in theaters. So just binged the entire series at that time, and and which I think genuinely affected how I responded to each of them in different ways. Yeah, I think I similarly taped these off of HBO. We didn't have HBO, but my parents' friends did, and they would let me tape things off and didn't really ask too many questions about what I was taping, because uh, I don't think I would have been allowed to watch the, the Godfather films openly. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, but they had quite an impression on me. I, I, There's definitely films I've come back to um, again and again. And I think I certainly have to point, I'd probably seen The Godfather, the first one more than the second, because it is an easier watch in many ways, a more traditionally entertaining film and, and also shorter. But yeah, I really, I, I love this film. I, I love the way the two fit together. Yeah, I, I can't even recall when I saw this film or, or The Godfather. It feels like these films have just kind of been there <laughs> for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's just that, you know, but though I, I don't think I ever, I don't think I've ever seen either one of them, the first and second one, projected before. I think it's oh, only been... Oh, I've seen been, them both, yeah. Have you? Yeah. I mean, because I, I would love those infamous dark rooms, uh, I think would probably play uh, better on a big screen. Gordon yeah. Willis' kind of interiors so that was a serious bone of contention with uh, Robert Evans, among among uh, many other issues. But, you know, I guess that what's kind of toggled back in my forth in my mind is like, you know which is the better of the two because I, I, I you know i don't I, I don't really know i mean i think that you know and, and i think for the longest for most of the, my uh adult life i think i've ended up leaning towards this one I, I just because i the scope of it is so astonishing it's just like it feels like the ultimate immigration epic uh you know in addition to being you know a pretty satisfying gangster film but at the same time of course the first one has i think the storytelling the 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 anecdotes you know it's it's kind of juicier in its way than the second um which which maybe gets a little mucked up maybe i'm getting ahead of myself on that uh front uh because we probably will talk about the two films in comparison but but um the way coppola sort of draws these timelines together and these men together um the techniques he uses to, to do so that the, the moments he uses to do so are so powerful and just the richness of the texture of the film just you know just uh, that was the true of the godfather as well of just uh you know getting every you know getting the music right getting the decor right um you know just kind of the you you feel just so utterly immersed you know in the world of these films and, and certainly in the world of uh, the godfather 2 is such an expansive one because we see so many mm -hmm. areas we see ellis island we see sicily we see new york at two different periods and it's just it's in every instance it's uh you know lake tahoe we see all of this stuff and it's and it's all so fully realized and beyond the storytelling which is in its own way quite masterful yeah we may as well get into like comparisons here um I think one one way of talking about it is, is talking about something that that is is a disastrous idea that has been executed was which was showing these chronologically. There is a <laughs> I mean, Coppola has said he is, he does not prefer that edit. And yet there there is an edit of them telling the story, taking all the the flashbacks from from part two and putting them ahead of all the action in part one. And uh, to me, I, I think it is that structure that elevates part two a little bit above the first one the rhymes there and and the, and the connections and and all that is is just is so beautifully done i mean i, I talked about the that rug scene it's really one of my favorite moments in movies ever because i think it's some, an effect that you can't can't really accomplish in quite the same way at least in any other medium 
Okay, so I know I've listened to enough of the show to know that sort of it, it falls to the third person to to take a slightly uh, contrarian uh, point <laughs> no, of just, view. It's just, ta- it's just Tasha. Just yeah. Tasha. Okay, well, I, I am filling in, so that is part of my role. Good. Um, Good, no, do I, I don't, I don't want to, for a moment, put across the notion that I believe Godfather Part Two to be anything less than a great American film. It obviously is. It's a, a, a pretty stunning achievement. All of that said, I have never subscribed to the what I feel like has almost become the predominant conventional wisdom that Godfather 2 eclipses the first one. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Well, first of all, I should say the one in in sort of an addendum to what I had said earlier, I hadn't seen the Godfather films before I saw all of them in that month-long stretch in 1990, but I I had by that time owned for a couple of years and probably memorized portions of the Roger Ebert movie Home Companion. And mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Ebert uh, notoriously gave Godfather Part Two a three out of four star review in the Sun Times and in that volume thus, compared to the obvious four stars of the, the first film. And there's a part of me that, you know, feels it's quite plausible that because I had I was so influenced by him and I had read those reviews before seeing the movie that they certainly steered my thinking on the comparative merits of the two films. But I genuinely believe that the first film is so in so it's so tight. Every every single beat in that movie pays off everything that's there is there for a reason there's a it's not a slickness because there's a that that has you know that's a negative connotation to that it just feels it's everything it's a perfect motion picture to me yeah and the godfather part two is a messier motion picture than that which in a lot of ways i think is admirable But the key thought that I always go back to when I'm thinking of them in comparison to each other is the kicker of that Ebert review, that original 1974 Ebert review, which I went and looked up again to remember I to make sure I remembered it correctly, which is the stunning text of The Godfather is replaced in part two with prologues, epilogues, footnotes and good intentions. (laughs) Yeah. I've always kind of felt the same way. I've always felt that all of, you know, that that it really does feel like it's sort of a bunch of different things kind of mashed together in a way that the first film does not, in a way that the first film pointedly does not. And that there are little things in it that bother me in a way that nothing did in the first film. That's, this is after watching both of them countless times for for many, many years. I've sort of maintained that point of view about about them comparative to each other. I wonder also if my influence goes the opposite way because I didn't have the, I've read a lot of Ebert since then, but I didn't grow up with the Ebert books. I grew up with Leonard, Leonard Maltin's movie, uh, Home Companion or Home Movie Companion or whatever it's called. I think the title changed over the years, but where Godfather Part Two gets four stars, uh, the Godfather gets three and a half stars. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, they're just they're they're both you know I, I they're both whatever four stars out of four or five yeah. stars. I mean, I love them both. I think that I would say the one thing I would say going against part two is I think all of the stuff involving Hyman Roth and Fredo and Cuba, I think, feel like there's, there's something murky in the storytelling there. That oh, is... I think it was like the third time I saw this film that I finally figured out. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, like, he's like, wait, you're thinking Hyman Roth is behind? Like, how is that possible? So, so you know, it's it's that part of it is murky in a way that absolutely is not 
I mean, the first film, there's nothing. It, it, it's it's as you say, a perfect film because it, like, it's so clear. But there, but I like. I I just think the 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 poetics of this film is Keith calls them like the the um the juxtaposition of these two stories i think the purposefulness of the veto part of it with de niro i mean i don't know you, you know ebert is super wrong about that i mean because <laughs> i feel like that part of the movie is absolutely tight as a drum and i don't know i don't know how you cannot watch that and, and not be <laughs> extremely impressed rather than just kind of like cast it off as sort of an epilogue rather than an incredibly important story about you know the the legacy of this family and how it began and what it says about America. And then it gets into politics and all that. I mean, it's such a, I think it's a richer text to kind of dig into to, for me than the Godfather. I think Godfather is just a much more gripping film overall and more a tighter film overall. It's just, I don't know. It's hard to, they're good. They're good films. These are good films. <laughs> uh, controversial opinion there. Yeah. Firing um, up the hot take. And the only other thing that, that I, that bothers me about Godfather part two, it's not even something I dislike. But because I understand fully, I've read enough about it to know that it was entirely out of, not entirely, but it was out of Coppola's control, is that the substitution of Frankie Pantangeli for Clemenza is so clumsy and sticks out even more because we have all of this material in the flashback section with the young Clemenza. Yeah, I, um, he, he was. So I, just for a little background for people who don't know, uh, Richard Richard Castellano, uh, who played Clemenza in the first film, did not return. Uh, as Coppola tells it, I guess there are some disputing accounts because he, not because of money, but because he wanted his friend to write all his dialogue for him. And Coppola would not agree to this somewhat uh, uh, understandably. So basically, apart from a couple of lines saying, oh, isn't it too bad Clemenza died? They basically just did a fan, find replace on the screenplay and dropped in uh, Frank Pentangeli. And here's the thing. I, I think that's a great performance, though. Absolutely, I, I, Michael Michael Gazzo is is uh, he's got that amazing voice and it's just everything about it. I, I think I, I really do like his work. So I, that doesn't really bother me. Apart, and in fact, if I hadn't, if I didn't know the backstory, I might not even think about it that much at all. Yeah, actually, I didn't actually not know that. <laughs> and I'm, not, not that you're, I'm learning something. I didn't know about that backstory yeah. either. I, if you know it going in, it's much more apparent than if you like discover it after the fact. So you're saying you're saying this guy should have been should have been, had somebody else write his dialogue. That, that I'm absolutely <laughs> not. That's acquiesced. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like I <laughs> well, realize it was other... a no win situation, but but the, the, uh, I, I I almost feel like maybe Bruno Kirby should have played the young Frankie if that was you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like that that portion of the of of the back and forth of the past and present is so. It's more jarring because we're we're in, we're meeting the younger version of that character. We we we'd see the the origins of the wagon wheel coffee table. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> gotta, gotta sure. Yeah, I, the other one they had to rescue on on the fly was the final scene, which is the the dinner scene uh, where all the, the the where James Caan is there and all the other characters are from from the original film are there except for conspicuously Marlon Brando who it was written for him to be there and, and it just didn't work out. So they kind of had to, I think that was up to the day of shooting. There was a possibility that he would be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's another thing, but I think that scene is lovely the way it is though. He was, he was the Kyrie Irving of his time. <laughs> yes, he, was, he refused <laughs> to get vaccinated um, <laughs> to show up for the scene. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, but I mean, I, th I think maybe if you didn't know that it wouldn't bother you. I think you might be honest something there, but, but I, 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 I and there is, there are a few more, tattered ends in this film uh admittedly but i also think that is some way makes it you know there's a lot more to dig into as well in some ways that's yeah. true yeah with this one yeah i just i i just think that 
the opening of this film is just like breath catching. I mean, just all that stuff at Ellis Island is just oh, yeah, yeah. So many. I'm not gonna. I, what can I? What, what's the word I can use that isn't the word iconic yeah. to describe <laughs> all of those images? Yeah. <laughs> Imagine a word that hasn't been egregiously overused and mis- misused that is the same as iconic because that is kind of describes all of the images there of the Statue of Liberty of of the you know the, both of the as the boat approaches it and then and then an incredible shot of the. Uh, of young young Vito in uh, in his room, Quarantine. very sick, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, looking out with that kind of ref, you know juxtaposition. It's just like it's awe-inspiring that that image. It's yeah. stunning stuff to it. Here's here's where Jason's expertise comes in. So you have the whole section set in the early um, in turn of the century New York. I don't know that I've ever seen that period realized quite as uh, richly in another film. Um, so am am I wrong there? Can you point to other examples or what about this depiction of, of that uh, period of New York history sets this film apart? No, I, it's it's absolutely. I mean, everything that I've read was, you know, one of the things that's interesting when you're reading about the production of both films is that, you know, no expense was spared in the making of Godfather 2 in a way that was quite different from the making of Godfather 1, where Paramount was trying to spend as little money as possible and paying everyone as, li- as little as possible and had floated uh, relocating the story to contemporary Kansas City as a way to save money. None of those monetary concerns were were raised on part two. They kind of, you know, that was, I, from what I understand, part of luring him to do it was sort of writing him a blank check. So the, um, yeah, the the trouble that they went to to recreate that sort of stretch of of New York City and and doing it in you know on the Lower East Side in the sort of the area that had been in an Italian enclave and a uh, an immigrant enclave in that era was was sort of unparalleled and and was not an area that was really uh, captured on film at the time either. I think sort of the closest you get is if you look at, and I don't recommend watching it for much of anything else, uh, The Jazz Singer, which is one of the films mm. that we that we profile in the book. That's that, that area around, you know, 1927 or so, 1926, which it had changed, but in a lot of ways it was still the same. You're still getting sort of those views of, you know, the push carts and the uh, the, the sort of vibrancy of of the neighborhood and the, the the hustle bustle of those streets. And those shots were captured at the real on the real Lower East Side via like hidden cameras and like laundry trucks and stuff like that. Hmm. But yeah, from from what I understand, you know, no expense was spared. Extensive research was done, and they they really they took that street over for a good couple three weeks during the production of, of the movie and really transformed it back to its heyday. Yeah, it's it's really quite quite remarkable. It, it it is one of those recreations where you feel like you could just walk into a shop and and order whatever they're, whatever they're they're selling um, as yeah. a, as if you travel through time. We should talk a little bit about oh, there's so much. I don't even know. There's so much going on here. I'm not even really sure. Were to, to to talk about it, but maybe a, a little bit in terms of where Coppola was in his career, because it had been an up and down career already at this point, and obviously this was a huge. The Godfather was a huge up. This comes out the same year as the conversation, which is just remarkable to me because I, yeah. I I think there's there's that that run uh, of films is is I don't want to say unparalleled, but it certainly as good as anyone else's. Uh, you know, the run from from Godfather through Apocalypse Now. It's just the four films, but yeah, it, it covers the seventies pretty well. It's true That's, <laughs> that decade is as good as a decade as anyone's one's had. But you know, I, I I'm not even sure. Go back a little bit further. What in the filmography suggested he was equipped to take on the first Godfather? 
And this to me feels like it is an undertaking uh, on, on a scale several sizes larger than that at a point where he had said he just kind of wanted to make his own small personal films. And this is personal, but it's definitely not small. Can we credit Robert Evans for this? I mean, like, to, I mean, somebody had to be able to see in Finian's Rainbow, in The Rain People, in, you know, <laughs> Dementia 13 or whatever. I mean, you had to see in some of those 60s films. And then what's what's the what's the kind of comedy that he did as well? Your big boy, You're now? big boy now, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, he had to see in those films somebody who could pull this off. And I, I mean, I think it was kind of a thought like the thought was like he's an Italian. <laughs> that <laughs> was a huge. That was a huge part of it, especially considering the sort of blowback they were already getting from like Italian American groups who were concerned right, okay. about portraiture. The fact that they were sort of making the gesture of hiring an Italian American director was was pretty important from what I understood. Understand? It was also helped to go back to the earlier point. They were able to get him cheap because he hadn't really had a hit yet. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of the filmography, I think there's less in his what he had directed to that point that points, if not to Godfather, then definitely to Godfather Two, than the screenplay to Patton. Right, uh, yes. which, oh, God, lest we forget, he won an Oscar for, you know? So, like, that right. was kind of the, the, thing, the thing he was best known for. And that, again, is a sort of a big canvas, uh, American with a capital A story. Uh, you know, I think I think that's sort of our most direct link previously. And then, in tor- of course, in the future, this was his first, you know, big canvas, big epic, impossible to think of Apocalypse Now without Godfather 2 in between them. Yeah, and, and and I think you could also say that in terms of the films he directed, I mean, Finian's Rainbow is a flawed film, but it is a big film. It is mm. a film that of scale. You know, sure. So, so you you can at least trust that he's worked with those kind of tools before, if not as maybe as successfully as folks would have wanted. But it makes sense. I com- I completely forgot about the patent thing. Of course, mm-hmm. that is a great point on that uh, as being uh, something it would be. You know, fill you with a certain amount of confidence that he might be able to get done, but it's still a gamble. I mean, this was not—he was not, yeah, you know, by no means an established directorial talent, and uh, and 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 really, even if you watched and admired some of those earlier films, and I, I personally am a, a very big fan of the Rain People, like beautiful movie. You don't see it. You don't necessarily think, oh, this guy's going to be able to do the, something like The Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think maybe nobody, maybe they couldn't have, you know, I mean, who can anticipate a film that good being made anyway? Maybe you just anticipate somebody carrying your gangster epic over the line and it being entertaining and people paying to see it. They don't really, you know, you can't necessarily expect someone to deliver a masterpiece for you on this on this level. I think people love this movie, but I think people are... Uh, there's an affection for the first Godfather. This this film doesn't quite inspire. I think it's part because the the Godfather has these vibrant characters like Michael and Kay and 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 Fredo and Sonny. And by Godfather 2, Sonny's dead. And everyone else is is kind of these wan, you know, disappointment-laden, you're burdened by disappointment versions of themselves. I mean, Mike, Pacino's performance in this film. uh, Yeah, it is. It is almost, he's not, quite human in this film and, and and that's not a criticism of the performance in any way it's 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 exactly what the the movie needs but it's you know there's none of the vibrancy or emotion i mean when you when you get to that dinner scene it's shocking to see how different a character michael is in, yeah. in that timeline uh and fredo fredo as well and, and sort of the warmth and affection and the, the this sort of nothing can tear us apart feeling you have for this this family i mean it is i mean the, the tragedy and it's so deep the idea that this group that that you know expressed a love for family above all 
uh, is destroying, you know, the family is, is destroyed by the end of the film in, in, yeah. in, in all but name. And it's, and also it's impossible to overstate the weight of Brando's performance in the first film and the warmth of that character mm. and the, the sort of paternal familial, you know, the sense that we get of that in that film of this, you know, a, a man who's capable of, of being very cold and ruthless, but who we mostly see as, as this paternalistic, warm, uh, accommodating figure. And that's absent entirely from the way Michael's running the family by the time part two starts. But I think, but I think it, it, he's so completely poisoned. Michael is by the end of that first film. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, we when we meet him, he's a war hero, right? Or he's leading a pretty normal life, uh, or trying to anyway. I mean, it just in you know, he's a, certainly a very different person by the end. He's he's uh, arranged this conclusion to the tensions between the five families he's uh he has cut one way of putting it scott he has he has (laughs) cut cut k out of his uh life of course famously and uh and yeah so as as he was saying yeah that we we do get a very when we start with him he is he is a fully corrupted fully ruthless person without much family left except for (laughs) fredo who is fredo yeah, and I, th- I want to dig into the, some of the individual performances, but let maybe start with um, Duvall's, Robert Duvall's performances as Tom Hagen, because oh, I think that's the yeah. character that, on the surface at least, changes the least between the two films. And there is sort of an innate kindliness and gentleness to it, and then you kind of have to step back and realize he's probably has more blood on his hands directly, or, or one step away from having blood on his hands, than almost any other characters because the echo of the horse's head in this is the murder of the prostitute uh which is you know almost certainly arranged by tom and carried out by by al neary and you know this is someone who this demeanor and ability to carry himself in such a way to suggest that he would be completely incapable of such an act hides the fact that he's he is completely capable of such acts it's a, it's it's um, one of the most understated performances in these films, and I think it's it's one of the best as well. And I think that the, that it also kind of suggests a certain type of power being wielded by non-Italians in a way, mm-hmm. like like you know, it, 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 you see it in the in politicians as well. And if you if you get into The Godfather Three, into the people uh, with of uh, religious backgrounds i mean just it's a subtler type of gangsterism taking place it's 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 um you know he's he's behind the scenes he's dictating things but of course as he said that will that is being executed is resulting in a tremendous amount of loss <laughs> um and uh and it is a very subtle performance both films duvall is like uh, you don't forget him exactly but he's exactly the shadowy figure that both the corleone family needs him to be and that the character, I guess, demands. There's a tiny Duvall moment that I, that I never really paid a lot of attention to that leapt out at me on this viewing, which is when Michael's given him the third degree about, you know, the job offer that he didn't take or and he he he's talks about moving his entire family out there and then says very coldly, you know, and your mistress. And the way mm. that Duvall sort of sort of reacts to that, the flipness of the way that Michael says that, and also it sort of jolted me because it's like, you know, in, like you say, in spite of the fact that he is really uh, this cold-blooded, you know, uh, figure with all this blood on his hands, you, yeah, I still think of him as like a good family man, da, 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 you know, and like to sort of to be reminded of his his darker self in that moment was is is really sort of startling. Beyond Duval, I offered up Duval. What are some performances that stand out for for you guys? 
I like Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, in this film, <laughs> I think he's a. I think he's pretty good. He's a promising young man. He's who might be going places. Well, I just think that this period of Robert De Niro, you know, I guess it would have been a couple of years after Mean Streets. He's just so electric like he's so dangerous that you know and he's so charismatic too he's like got all the because he's got all of this charisma but it's kind of a dark charisma and and a little bit wild but i guess the difference of course is that you know is that Vito is not a complete screw up in the way in the way that his character in mean streets was he has a you know and he has a very clear vision of where he needs to to go and what what he needs to do i mean it's a very instinctual based you know circumstantial of just like i have the family i need to survive you know it's and uh and this is going to be the route to do that and and you just see step by step him you know doing what it takes to kind of move up the ladder and and uh you know i mean does if he if he doesn't lose his job as a grocer i mean does does this do either of these movies ever happen? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and of course that's hastened by by the intervention of a of a gangster. So so the the culture sort of ends up directing his his life. But uh, but I don't think there's any kind of uh, impulse necessarily to be a criminal or, or build a criminal empire. It's just it's just you see that slippage, that step by step of uh, and uh, De Niro handles it with just such poise and danger and just uh, I, I, it's it's a, it's a incredible performance a lot of acting on his face and not with his words and this one too yeah and not the face not the no, face not that the ooh, the, the, that face no, <laughs> that face now makes in every film but yeah people know you don't have to you know you, they can't hear they can't see you making the face but they know, know what the, the face, face is yeah you know i've seen the movie so many times that i find myself on on this degree of a rewatch noticing performances i haven't paid as much attention to before This time, I really found myself watching Talia Shire a lot. Yeah. Mm. Who I think does not. There's we're so prone to dismissiveness in cases of nepotism that I think she doesn't really get due for how for not only how good she is in each of these films, but for the, the sort of incredible arc of the character over these three films. And in the first movie, it's kind of a nothing role. I mean, it's she's she's there and she's the the cute little sister and she, you know, do, does what she does well. But it's there's not a lot of screen time there. And in this one, it's just so so striking the 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 journey she's been on between the end of one and the beginning of two. The way she's sort of coming on as the black sheep at the beginning of this film. The way that she arrives at the party after the communion ceremony and is sort of you know berated by mama corleone and just the clear mess that she's made of of her life in the intervening years and then just every time she reappears throughout the film it's very purposeful she's serving the story in a really interesting way the way in which she has she kind of brokers what looks to be the peace between michael and fredo at least temporarily that scene in particular struck me having revisited three uh, not long ago as really key in sort of the, the the role that she serves in the story in Godfather three, where she really has become something of a power broker within the family. I think it's a really sharp, keenly felt performance. Yeah. And I think the journey she goes on within the film as well, the way she ends up uh, as coming back into the fold and also kind of turning into a true believer beyond that too. It's it's kind of chilling. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's a great performance. And John, we should say John Cazale is also uh, yeah. quite good. I mean, so yeah, good. just uh, just just just. I just kind of want to hit all the obvious ones here, right? Dude, Pacino, yeah. good work, Pacino. Uh, and, fine, way through, yes, but yeah, always, fine there's work. so few Cazale performances. That, yeah, that, but I, but I think you're kind of wonder if you're you're overestimating the achievement, but you look at every one of them and he's so good in every single one of them. I, I, it's, it's awful what we were deprived of with with his with his loss. Yeah. I mean, there's obvious you know, weakness there, uh, but along with that weakness, like a vulnerability that you can kind of connect to as well, that, that makes that character, you know, a, a tragic character and not just a foolish character. Yeah, right. the desperation yeah. of those of those last couple of scenes with Michael, you know, how 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 clear it is that he that in losing his his, you know, his line into his family that he's lost everything. There's nothing left there is so heartbreaking even aware of what he's done it's really really a tremendous piece of work yep for sure yeah for for sure I, i'm so i'm thinking about you know this is a film of very big famous moments and we can list them off I, I, and I, we haven't mentioned how good diane keaton is uh throughout the film but especially in, in her famous oh, confrontation yeah. oh with gosh. michael and, and the look on pacino's face starting to turn into the chris yeah. Farley shows like do you remember that, that look on pacino's face <laughs> when she tells him um yeah. but uh in two we would say in two yeah right? yeah, yeah yeah exactly but are there, are there any smaller details that stood out for you one for me is i i know i noticed it before but but uh uh, I love how modestly Hyman Roth lives and like just this very, you know, an inconspicuous uh, Florida uh, suburban home. I mean, that, yeah. that to me is, is a is a really telling detail. Yeah. Like, what is he doing? What is he? What is all the scheming actually for? Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what is where is all the where is it all going? Yeah. He, he may have been dying of the same heart attack for however, for however many years or whatever. But but at the same time, he is near much nearer to his lo- end of his life than his beginning. What it, there is a question of what all what is all this for? I mean, it all kind of comes down to the famous Chinatown exchange. Like, what, what, how much money do you need? You know, and that's that's kind of at the heart of a lot of a lot of this uh, as well. I was first of all, I was really, you know, because we're thinking about, you know, past and present talking to each other. I was really tuned in to the crossfades this time in Mm -hmm. a way, just paying specific attention to them in a way that I haven't always and was really struck by the beauty of them and how how beautifully they're communicating with each other visually that all uh, how many of them are sort of Michael on one side of the screen. And then we crossfade to, you know, young Vito on the other and the way that those emotions that each of them are having are often complementary to each other, but sometimes also speak to the differences between them uh, at those moments. That was really striking to me this time around. And then the other thing that that jumped out at me, and it is a small thing, but because I was thinking about this movie in relation to the Sopranos, was you mentioned the you know the the thing with the with the rug and with Sonny, uh, which is a beautiful moment. The sequence where they actually steal the rug, the sort of delicate intermingling of incongruent tones in that sequence struck me as very influential on the sopranos the way that it sort of starts 
as a comedy sequence because you know you got Bruno Kirby's playing, which is you know he's a he's a terrific comic actor. The way that it's initially scored with that sort of jaunty music and you know and the comedy of of him saying, "Oh, I guess he forgot I was coming," you know. But then how quickly it turns dark and he becomes menacing in that great shot where the cop is, you know, the silhouette of the cop is in the door and he's next to the door holding the gun. And the way that that the, 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 the shift on a dime in that moment, like really takes your breath away. And then they cut right back to comedy with them carrying it through the street and the jaunty music is back. And just the, the ability to, to intermingle those tones without giving an audience whiplash, I think is, is really, again, is striking there and also a clear key to how they, they navigated those tones on the Sopranos. And I guess I, I've got a couple of moments. Uh, one of them just silly. Who's the who the the, the name of the gangster that uh, is running, uh, uh, running the uh, streets before Vito comes up? What is his name? Oh, the the guy from the Black Hand. Um, you know, I've Finucci. Finucci, right? Yeah. So, so uh, I, I of course. You think of Homer. Notice that the that <laughs> that, that, that the, the scene of him kind of uh, there's a scene of him sort of walking around that is that is the clear visual uh, uh, inspiration for the Simpsons uh, dream uh, uh, sequence where Homer imagines himself as a gangster saying grazie that that's a nice donut yep yep uh, uh, exactly the same like I, it was really fun. like i didn't realize until watching that again watching it again down that it was just shot for shot like the exact same shot so that's that's the silly thing that stood out i guess the other thing that kind of stood out for me is almost more theme wise and it comes up again in a huge way in godfather three it's just the idea of legitimacy of of like uh, of of the way power is is wielded and and how we consider one exercise of power to be illegitimate and another exercise of power to be legitimate uh, when both of them have, you know, fairly violent and catastrophic ends of, uh, uh, you know, so, so it was kind of standing out to me a little bit when I was thinking about, you know, the, the political angle, I guess, of, of this film. And then of course, when you get to Godfather three, that is the story of Godfather three, I think. Yeah, Coppola talks about on the audio commentary for the part two is each one being uh, an ascent to a higher reign of, of power. Uh, you know, we're we're entering politics in the second one, and then then the church and the third. So we may as well we've we've I don't want to dwell on it, but we may as well talk about Godfather Part Three. We may as well complete the series. I we, as this episode is itself kind of a sequel to a fairly recent episode we did on One from the Heart, which led to Coppola taking on a lot of projects, uh, to working very hard in the eighties to to make back lost money. You know, Godfather Part Three was kind of. In, as a possibility in his back pocket all that time, it was finally turned into a film that was released in 1990, which it earned somewhat mixed reviews and its reputation, I believe, has only diminished over the years. Uh, I saw it in Until the theater. recently, I think. Well, I, I think? saw it. I, 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 I kind of talked myself into to thinking it was as, as good as the others. But I feel like, I think, as, as Scott was saying, I, I think very recently there's been a somewhat another reappraisal, particularly with the, with Coppola releasing a new cut of the film, which I have not seen. That is the one I have not seen in a while. What, what's everyone else's take on Godfather Part 3? Perhaps, Jason, you said you saw it recently. I did. Well, I saw my initial take, which sort of is the one that you stick with for a good long while. You know, I saw it in such close proximity to seeing the first two films for the first time, again, within those first few weeks, that I oddly have always been warmer towards it than a lot of other mm -hmm. people. And I think that really has to do with with the question of sort of 
the period of time over which you have to build up uh, expectations and hope and thus are capable of disappointment. Of course, having seen it in close proximity, I knew it was not the film that the first two had been, but you know, I, it also, I didn't have 16 years of looking forward to be too worked up about its relative lack of quality. I've always thought that it's a fine film that clearly had been, you know, I had read the production stuff at the time. Like they were, it was one of those things where, you know, you've been waiting 16 years on it, but now we're going to go with it and you have to get it done in six months. Like it had a really rushed production uh, mm. uh, and post-production period because they were really trying to get it into theaters by Christmas. And I think that certainly affected some of the the sort of some of the editing of, of the picture. I think if he had had longer to sit with it in script phase and in editing phase, uh, it could have been stronger. I think I, Sophie is just really bad in it. And I mean, it's, yeah. and she wasn't an actor. Like, it's not, you know, but I've always felt that if Winona Ryder hadn't had to drop out, if she had played that role initially, it would have been a stronger film. But there's also a lot in it that I think really works. I think Andy Garcia is great in it. I think Pacino's performance is really terrific. I think all of the sort of ascension through the, you know, the halls of power and the Vatican stuff is really fascinating. And I have seen the, the Godfather Coda, the new cut. Um, and I think it is far better. I think there are just a couple mm. of very minor tweaks that he makes and reshuffling that really improve the overall quality of the of the film the main one being you know that there's a there's a scene that's like a half hour into the movie where he's you know that's sort of the power powwow with their vatican contact that is moved to the beginning of the movie in a way that it ends up very directly paralleling the godfather one's opening sequence and echoing uh you know the scene with the senator near the beginning of godfather two that really realigns the entire movie in a way that it's sort of an astonishing testament to the power of just very minor edits. So I've never hated three. I've always thought it is at least worthwhile. Um, and I do think the, that the new cut is, is an improvement as well. I think the confession scene alone kind of oh justifies existence. Yes. Um, it's an amazing moment. And there's other, there's other really strong elements in that film. Although again, it's been years since I've seen it. it it's weird thing about to me is it is, it looks so different. Yeah. Gordon Willis shot it, but it has a totally different texture. It's very look to slick. It. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not not of a piece with the other two. It looks like a 1990 release. It looks like it also, it also yeah. looks like kind of his work leading up to it too. I mean, the, the, there was a kind of a gloss that he mm. was to the, to some of his 80s films. I mean, Tucker was right. Would have been the film pretty close to it or right it was before a few it? years before. But it yeah. was like 87 was yeah. Tucker or something or 80. Something. Yeah, no, it was 87 because I. Think. I, I no, wait, what year did Die Hard come out? Because 88. I remember, 88. Yeah, okay. Okay, because I remember I wanted I told talked to my friends in the scene that and Tucker and they wanted to see Die Hard. Uh, um which, those are both good good films. Both good yeah. movies. Well um, uh, Tucker's my a, favorite of his eighties movies. I love that movie. But yeah, but I liked, uh, uh Peggy Sue, but you know Peggy Sue's a good one too. Yeah. Anyway, that's you got your guy. Yeah, in I got, yeah it's, Um it's so uh close. yeah, I mean I, I'll be brief about Godfather Three. I mean I I that was one I saw before it came out, I was a I was working as a projectionist at a theater, and uh, and they wanted me to look at it, just look at the print that they had, which is something we did uh, pretty commonly to make sure that it looked and sounded like it was supposed to. And so I saw it all by myself 
well before it came out, which of course was an extremely exciting thing for me to be doing. Sure. And I was very much influenced by that potentially and in, in being absolutely wowed by it. And then maybe seeing it later and thinking it wasn't quite as good as I'd remembered. But but I do have a lot of affection for it. And I saw it again uh, recently. And, and I think that there are obvious flaws, but tremendous merit too. And, and a, a very deep tragedy too i mean i think as, as much as much as we might make fun of the whole dad moment that that opera sequence is is very well put together and and uh and the tragedy of uh, of, of that loss is massive you, you, even with a performance that is kind of disappointing um so uh, i don't know i think it's worth revisiting i'm kind of excited to see this new newer cut i think that'd be that, to see you know what kind of reaction i might have to it well, I think we can all agree that The Godfather Part 2 is a lot, you don't have to make quite as much of an argument for it as, as Godfather Part 3. It's easier to agree upon. And we will talk about it more in the second installment of this pairing. Uh, for now, we're going to move on to feedback, which we'll address after a short break. Now it's time for feedback where we answer any questions or respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. We recently ran a format breaking episode on strange days and the fate of movies that have become borderline unavailable, either on streaming platforms or the physical media has gone out of print or whatever. They've disappeared more or less. Uh, we received several responses along the lines of this letter. So we'll let it stand for all of them. Scott, can you read that? Uh, yes. Uh, Mike from Cleveland writes, I recently noticed something about how you talk about the availability of movies featured on the show. I've been thinking about it for the past few weeks, and then today, when listening to your great episode about Strange Days, a movie I loved when it came out and saw twice in the theater, but never since, it struck me again. I know most viewers watch movies via streaming services. However, there are many, like me, that still have an old DVD or Blu-ray player, or even a 4K player, uh, for those of us who can still play physical media, the public library, and this is all in caps, is a great place to find movies. Popular movies, rare ones, movies for kids, foreign films from around the world. I borrow movies from the library all the time. Where I live in Cleveland, I have access to three different but excellent library systems, all with great collections. Uh, the downtown branch of the Cleveland library system, which I visit often, even has a dedicated Criterion section with hundreds of Criterion releases. And sure enough, I can borrow a Strange Days DVD anytime. I know we don't all have access to such well-curated library collections, but your local library may surprise you, especially if it's been a long time since your last visit. Wear a mask, please, he, he advises. I'm afraid most people don't even think about libraries anymore, which is a shame because they're still out there, staffed by dedicated, smart people who want to help you find great art. And they're one of the last vestiges of free, truly public spaces we have. A rare thing indeed. Yeah, I think we did at least touch on libraries, but but I'm glad that people, we were called out on this as yeah. the husband of someone with a, who's not a librarian, but who holds a library degree uh, and works in like a library shame association on you. For, for, for years. I, 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 I probably should have dwelt on this longer. So yes, go libraries. I think we can all agree on that. I mean, uh, Jason, I know you work out of the library quite a bit, so I know you're a, you're a fan, right? A lot. Well, yeah. The one thing I will say specifically to this point is that anyone who's listening who lives in New York and is not aware, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, uh, which is at Lincoln Center, 
uh, not only as a tremendous sort of research space and all of the great things, the DVD collection at that location is as good as the best stocked video store of that era. Like every time I go there, which is often, I leave with an arm load. It's a, it's a tremendous resource of that's full of old titles, it's full of classics, full of foreign stuff, and really a lot of things. They, for a good long while, bought every Warner Archive release that came out. You know mm. what I mean? Like every KL Studio Classics release. So some of this stuff that really does only exist on Blu-ray, on DVD, they have there. I, I, I never miss an opportunity to encourage my fellow New Yorkers to take advantage of this incredible resource. The only complaint I have about the Chicago uh, library system when it comes to movies is I don't think they've ever brought in Blu-rays, so it's all DVDs, and uh, you know it's a little, it's a, that's pretty Second City behavior, I gotta right. say. Well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, but not but, but, I mean, we, but yeah, the other thing too is that uh, you know again if you're if you're if you want to stay home, I mean, there's canopy now. If you're, if you're, we that don't have system, canopy here in Chicago. We have hoopla. We have hoopla, which is good. Which is too, fine, though. but it, it is. It, it's I do have. I do have a certain amount of canopy and envy, yeah. particularly when Same. the Wiseman. I know the Wiseman's even on there. Are they still on there? Because I don't think New York has it anymore. Do you? We don't know that we we the the New York Public Library and Canopy severed their relationship, mm. uh, frankly, mm. not long before lockdown began, which was not the best timing imaginable. Uh, people mm. people could just settle in and watched. Uh, Watch some Wiseman films. Watch some Wiseman because those are, those are hard ones to see. Well, some 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 grousing aside, libraries are great. So our Strange Days episode also invited one reader to bring up a bigger related question, which I will now read. Matt writes, "I'm a huge fan of the show, and your recent episode on Strange Days prompted me to watch the movie for the first time." Through legally dubious but morally sound means. While I had known of this movie, I had never seen it. I distinctly remember really disliking the original trailer, which features a greasy Rafe Fiennes talking directly to the camera, giving the audience the same have you ever jacked in, have you ever wire tripped spiel that he gives a potential client in the movie. Strange Taste was released in 1995, the same year as Hackers, The Net, and Johnny Mnemonic, and the trailer made it look like another techno thriller with corny, instantly dated slang, and an already tired premise. I remember hating this trailer. I really enjoyed the movie on my first watch last night, but it made me wonder if the trailer contributed at all to its commercial failure. Do you think this trailer works for the movie that we get? What are some of your favorite movies that were severely underserved or misrepresented by their trailer, which might have led to audiences staying away? Here's here's the one I always wonder about is if I would feel differently about the movie, what lies beneath if I had not seen this trailer and seen it many times leading up to it and not at the time recognizing that it reveals a huge spoiler about the film on which, you know, makes you rethink everything you know about a particular character. I'm trying to be a spoiler for, you know, trying to keep this spoiler free for this, you know, 20 plus year old movie. But I, I you know, ha- having a certain appreciation for Robert Zemeckis and, and, uh, and, and such now more than then, even uh, I, I wonder if, if I would, feel differently if i if it had not been spoiled for me maybe i could re- see it now and find out but at the time i was i thought it was kind of a shrug that's interesting i i, I don't think i can't think of any specific examples because like i can think of examples of trailers i really like that went way way out on a limb and may not have sold 
anyone on the movie. Uh-huh. Like my favorite trailer of all time is Minus Man. The Minus Man. Yeah, that's a great trailer. Oh, right. No, it wasn't that one. It's it's the trailer for Real Life by Albert Brooks, which is in three, which uh, is him behind a desk and ta- and then it, everything goes into three D and it's just it's, it's it, you got to see it. It's it's an amazing trailer that barely gets into what the actual movie is about. Uh, uh, but I so I don't think it's selling people on Real Life, which you know. I don't know if that was ever going to be like a, a box office smash or anything, but uh, but the trailer itself is, a, is kind of a work of art. What, what bothers me, it puzzles me, I guess, is the, the trailers that really just give everything away that happens in the movie. Yeah. That you just know, and that's common. And, and what makes it, 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 it always has been. Also, if you if you right. like go back the, and look at like trailers, are so trailers in the forties and fifties, oh same worse. thing. Wait, they're worse. They're longer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. the Carrie trailer, the Chinatown trailer, like have the the, the closings of the movies in them. Yeah. But, but sweet smell of success is a is a is one where, where you don't you know almost feel like you don't need to watch the movie after watching it. Right. But you should. Yeah, he, I guess the thing that bother that bugs me about it is that is that you can't you know as a critic you get yelled at for writing the premise of a movie now you know and, the, and yet the trailer just give, the trailers themselves give away a tremendous amount of the of of the film and I, I don't really get that you know I mean I guess again these are people who know their business more than me but I don't see a movie being helped all that much by uh, people feeling having the experience of the entire film in a three minute stretch so well, yeah. jason describe describe for us for for listeners who weren't seeing every art house release in 1999 uh what the minus minus man trailer was like and how it hit it's like a little short film where you where it's it's nothing that's in the movie it's just two people who saw the movie on a date talking about the movie afterwards. And then it sort of goes in a couple of interesting places, but it's just like, it's this idea of people talking about the movie instead of like showing the movie, which in an interesting way, is kind of a throwback. Like there would be movies, you know, trailers in like the forties and sort of the early days of it, where you would just see, you know, like everyone's talking about the latest motion picture from, you know, that kind of thing. But it was, it's just, it also has its own sort of strange muted, almost ominous tone. I don't know. It's a very, it's a hard trailer to describe, but you, it's on YouTube. Like it's very easy to see. Um, yeah, and, and with, really with, with no slight against this minus man, which is which I remember being fine. It is it's yeah, better it's than the minus man itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing too about these trailers that give away the whole movie is that, especially now in the age of the you know the streamable, downloadable trailer. People watch these over and over and over again when they're really excited about a movie. So to drop something in that someone who's seen it several times will be distracted by knowing is coming is seems like mm. a, a, a very silly decision. Like I remember seeing Castaway, not to turn this into a Zemeckis bash fest, but um, having seen the trailer a lot of times just from going to the movies a lot. That was in you know my pre-critic days when I just went to the movies every week. And so I'd seen that trailer a gajillion times. I knew he was going to make it off the island because there were shots in the movie of him like, you know, running down the the rainy street for Helen Hunt. It's like it's it mm-hmm. completely, of course, you knew he was going to make it off the, the island, but still it's still to have that completely drained is, is not, right. you know, it's disruptive to the to the spell the motion picture is supposed to cast to echo matt though i i also remember the the trailer for strange days being highly mockable and for some of the same reasons mm. that he points out is it is you know if you don't understand the context or the character the, the language yeah and, and it's and and, <laughs> and it is did come out in the midst of a lot of uh, i mean i know 
uh, some of these films have developed a, a cult following over yes. years, but but uh, um, it was in the midst of a lot of uh, techno thrillers that were largely, you know, uh, you know, I'll just say a little closer to the lawnmower man than than uh, the, than, than the Matrix. You know, yeah. I mean, the Strange Days is, you know, I mean, it really kind of saw things coming a little bit better now than a lot of those other movies did. Because you wouldn't know it from the trailer necessarily. No, but I mean, I think the I think I would say though that the conceit of a trailer like that is not bad. It just you know, it's all about execution. I mean, I think the the idea of like taking someone who you know, we know to be charismatic or Ray Fine, charismatic actor, you know, trying to sell people, sell the audience on the idea of this drug that delivers experience is not a bad pitch I mean, because you, you, you watch strange days. You're like, God, what would that be like? What would it be like to actually experience the world through somebody else's eyes? But then, you know, again, it's a matter of how it's uh, actually executed. And uh, I think he's probably right that, uh, it's not not a very good trailer. Uh, we need to move on at some point, but I, I do try to think of an example of a movie that really was poorly served by its trailer. Crimson the, Peak. The, well, yeah. I don't remember the trailer for that. I remember liking the movie quite a bit. The I, movie's, I don't remember the trailer. The, yeah, the movie's terrific, and but it's just that movie is so much. If I may uh, borrow the verbiage of of the kids today, is so much of a vibe. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. and the pleasures of it are are so hard to encapsulate in a two and a half minute attempt to summarize a plot. You know, it just it looks like a very kind of generic uh, gothic movie you've seen a gajillion times. Uh, and and I remember not really being all that interested in it from that trailer and then seeing the movie and sort of having my socks knocked off. All right. Well, we always appreciate when listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at The Many Saints of Newark, which flashes back to the early days of another famous fictional gangster, Tony Soprano. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep your friends close, your enemies closer, and keep the banana daiquiris flowing. Then there's the sun. The sun. Most sons are like imitators of their father. So we're back again to the father if he is guiding in the right way. The sun is definitely going to be all right.